there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. Judge Wapner called the People's Court to session for the very first time. Entertainment Tonight also made its television premiere. Simon and Garfunkel reunited for a concert in Central Park, and the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee approved Sandra Day O'Connor by unanimous vote, and on the 25th of the month, she was sworn in as the first woman justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, which, by default, is cooler than any of the movies that came out in September of 1981. Hi, everybody. I'm Drew McWeenie, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Weinberg. What's up, man? That's me. I'm Scott Weinberg. So uh, before we get started, real quickly. Say oops upside your head. Say oops upside your head. Say oops. We always want to up front acknowledge when we miss something. And I was actually just reading a thing about reissues and realized we missed one of the biggest of the 80s. We missed Francis Ford Coppola's restoration and reissue of Abel Gantz's Napoleon, which was treated as an event that was basically a year long, rolling out from city to city in this giant 70 millimeter roadshow exhibition version that opened in January at Radio City Music Hall. I don't think they've made it readily available since then, and it's a real shame because it was one of those things where it kind of needs to be in theatrical reissue on a regular basis. It only works theatrically. It's He designed it like primitive Cinerama with three panels and multiple screens and stuff cutting back. I saw the 70 millimeter version then. I got taken to see it. I didn't understand much of it, but it was a unbelievable spectacle. And uh, it was, I think, one of the biggest moments of somebody trying to do like a major restoration and putting it back out in the theaters for that uh, early part of the 80s. You know what else is a, is a major spectacle? What's a major spectacle? Your face. Bam! I'm trying to make this show a little funnier. You know, <laughs> this is, these are the jokes. These are the comedy jokes. Mm. Listen, folks, it's one thing to listen to the show. It is another thing to throw your support behind it. We are grateful to each and every one of you who have already pledged at the five, the 10 or even the $15 level at www.patreon.com backslash 80s all over. What has arrived recently for the subscriber base? Last week, we did a brand new full length audio commentary for Flash Gordon. Savior of the universe. That's the one flash. Oh, Uh. gosh. We've also released a sneak peek at chapter one of the first of the 80s all over books. If you can't do a monthly pledge, I get it. But we hear all the time about how people make lists while they're watching the show to try to track films down. So why not track them down through the 80s all over store, which is at 80s all uh, we just reorganized it. You can find everything now, just like we do it here on the show, month by month in order. And I think with the exception of about two or three films, we got everything that we covered in 1980 up on the store. 
So if you uh, listen to our show and you all of a sudden are suddenly inspired to purchase, say, used cars or Dead and Buried or Prince of the City or Flash Gordon, Drew, should I keep going? Uh, you can stop by 80s All Over and just purchase it through one of those links and that helps us out a lot and you get the movie. And then what generally happens is you'll tweet to one of us and we'll respond politely because we appreciate your patronage. <laughs> Um, thank you very much, guys, for sitting through the plugs. And now let's jump right into it because it's a uh, it's kind of a strange month. September 1981 is all over the place. Like now, uh, the summer movie season really grinds to a halt in September. You'll get a, a handful of like blockbuster type popcorn movies and maybe some what we call like damaged goods uh, tent pole movies. But for the most part, September is kind of a schizophrenic month. And it was back then, too. You, sometimes you notice when you're watching stuff all together and you're watching things month by month and you see these accidental sort of flurries of uh, there's a bunch of stuff like this in common. There's a bunch of stuff like this in common. Uh, fair warning here. There was lots of casual use of the word fag this month, and it was really shocking. You forget how in the early 80s, people dropped that nonstop continental divide. John Belushi has a moment where he's just talking to somebody and casually says, are you a faggot? And and. We were watching it, and I think everybody in the room gasped because we just weren't expecting it. Even in amiable comedies, where you just get a either a fag reference or a, uh, a you know gay panic joke, and you're like, okay, I mean, this was grown worthy in 1988. You know, it's even worse now, but it's important to watch those films in the context of their era. Sixteen Candles, if it was made today, would look a lot different. Oh God, a Revenge of the Nerds, or yeah, I mean, there's. A, let's start actually with two films, then back to back, that I think in each in their own way, are enormously pinned to the moment they came out. The first one is the debut directorial feature by Andrew Bergman. It's called So Fine. How did Ryan O'Neill become so successful? By accident. This is sensational. What if your dad's selling jeans? Fabulous. We've got a real phenomenon going here, Dad. So Fine. A revealing comedy about reaching the top by way of the bottom. So fine. Rated R. Starts Friday, September 25th. Check newspapers for local listing. This is a terrible movie. Um, <laughs> Andrew Bergman, who, yeah, he, he uh, co-wrote Blazing Saddles, and then he wrote by himself The In-Laws. So with your name on two smash hits and legitimately great comedies, uh, any producer would say, what else do you want to make? Oh, you want to direct? Okay. And obviously, Andrew Bergman, who went on to direct The Freshman and other films, is went on to become a much better director. I think So Fine is, like, it wants to be a sex farce. It wants to be a satire of consumerism. It wants to be a, a parody in some ways. It has some kind of, like, um, spy angle to it. It's just all over the place. I couldn't stand it. I really was, it was grating on my nerves. This is uh, The Incredible Shrinking Woman, but in reverse, because uh, while I think So Fine does not work overall, I think there's a lot of Andrew Bergman in it, and I think there are sequences that work all the way through it. He has a lot of fun with Richard Keel and the fact that Richard Keel is 11 feet tall and has never been treated like this in a movie, though. For a reason, he is one of the worst actors I've ever seen. He makes Michael Jordan look like a good actor. Have you seen Space Jam? I Oh, my God. I, look, I think he gets a lot of genuine laughs out of Richard Keel in the film. And oh. beyond that, Jack Warden's story, there's this weird thing that the movie does. where I, I, My disdain for this movie, I have to point out, 
take Jack Warden out of the equation because his moments are almost like a good film stuck in a terrible film. That's what's interesting to me is the fact that there's more than one movie going on here. There's the opening scene with Ryan O'Neill, and then suddenly we jump to Jack Warden for 15 to 20 minutes doing death of a salesman, but with fart jokes. And then because of the deal he made with Richard Keel for financing, the gangster comes looking for his money and then takes the business and says, your son has to come work for us. It's it's an insanely belabored way to get Ryan O'Neill working for his father for some reason. All right. The uh, the premise of the movie is that Ryan O'Neill comes up with this idea for assless jeans. You can see through the back of the jeans and see the ass cheeks. That was the premise they sold it on. But that's only about 25 minutes of the movie, if you think about it. There's just shooting for absurd screwball comedy and a, a few moments land. But by the time this had gotten to like an hour, I just wanted to be free of this tone. I mean... Did I see Richard Keel in blackface singing an operetta? I mean, okay, before you say in blackface, put it in the context, which is they're doing a production of Othello and he's playing a Moor, and it is 1980 when those productions were still being staged like that. That's how you did Othello. But the idea that they they're doing the opera and Richard Keel comes out to kill his wife who is on stage singing the opera and he's not supposed to be out there. And then when he opens his mouth and starts singing, he's awesome and then has to chase her around the stage and Ryan O'Neill gets involved. It is complete screwball ridiculousness. I really like the joke that Keel is great on stage, that he's not out of place. That like this big giant brute actually can sing like an angel. That's the joke that. Well, after the rest of the movie that we've seen from him, yes, because he's an animal for the rest of the movie. So suddenly he opens his mouth and boom. As much as I can't stand this movie, I I still consider myself a big fan of Bergman. He would go on to write Fletch, Soap Dish, Honeymoon in Vegas, lots of good stuff. And it just seems like for his first movie, this movie seems like it was financed with cocaine. It seems like they sat on cocaine, like ate cocaine for lunch and shot cocaine. I think you pointed out to me that you thought that this movie if it was a person, would be a sentient mountain of cocaine. And I think there is something to the mountain of cocaine movies that we were talking about the other day, where it's just how else would these things have gotten made? And it was an era where, man, people were saying yes to stuff, and I I think it was undercooked, and I think at the same time, they were all overcooked. I, I'm glad. when I like when we disagree, because we, dis, we agree a lot more often. So I, I like when we disagree, even if you're wrong about this one. Before we move on, do you want to mention who did the score for So Fine? If you listen to it and if you have like his various uh, soundtrack collections, like greatest hits and things he's done. One of the things about Ennio Morricone that you learn very quickly is that dude will reuse a piece of music. I think he probably got more gigs where he went, have you seen this movie? And they said, no. And he goes, good, don't. And then just use the piece of music again. There are themes all through this that I recognize from Italian films, that I recognize from collections where I've never seen the movie because I've never even heard of what it was. I would also point out that when you were talking about this on Twitter and said that you tapped out, Stephen E. D'Souza, the writer of Die Hard, popped in to say that when it was in theaters and he saw it, that it played like gangbusters. Uh, Drew and I and Stephen D'Souza, find him on Twitter, uh, would like to hear your uh, your thoughts on So Fine. Let's see if you're on Team Drew or Team Weinberg. Let's move on. <laughs> All right. Well, this next one, you're, again, you're talking about a movie that was trying to tackle mores and social issues and do it through the filter of comedy and... Um, I want to talk about the movie, and then I really want to talk about the writer and the director of the film. We're talking about Carbon Copy. Guess who's coming to dinner? Hi, Daddy. Your son? Natural son? Yes. Guess who has a change of address? This is home. 
a new hobby. You can teach me how to build a model airplane. I'll show you how to pick a lock. Why are you doing this to me, God? And a new job. It's black and white. In living color. Carbon copy. Rated PG. It's George Siegel as a, an, a harried executive with a, a really reprehensible wife <laughs> and a really nice house. And a father-in-law played once again by... Jack Warden, of Jack course. Jack Warden. <laughs> and uh, he discovers early in the film that he has a grown son or a teenage son he didn't know about. Not only that, Drew, but guess what? Um, He's black. No. In 1981. They didn't have black people in 1981. There's never been a white man who had a black son before 1981. I walked into this having not seen it since early 80s cable. I am fascinated by Michael Schultz, the director of the movie, because he's a guy who undeniably uh, occupies a huge place in the history of black filmmakers in America, and more importantly, black filmmakers working for studios. Because um, there are a lot of black indie directors working in the 70s who were kind of working in black exploitation or who were working outside the studio system, but after Car Wash, he was considered like a hot property and very quickly climbed the ladder there. This is the kind of movie that they were giving him. You know, when he directed the truly god-awful Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band for Universal, that was the largest budget ever commanded by a black filmmaker at the time and a huge, huge deal for him to get hired. This is the movie he made right afterwards, and um, it's not what it looks like at first. The George Siegel character quickly comes to grips with the fact that he has a son who is black. Instantly, everybody else around him shows their true colors as just the most revolting racists you could possibly imagine. Stanley Shapiro, the writer, is a guy who did like the Doris Day comedies, Touch of Mink and Pillow Talk and stuff like that. And uh, the original Bedtime Story, which became Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Shapiro was the kind of studio writer who did like really safe, tame stuff. It feels to me like somebody told him to be edgy before he started writing this. The movie literally opens with George Siegel raping his wife. The only reason he doesn't finish raping her is because the, the housekeeper interrupts them. And I'm not exaggerating because the next scene begins with Siegel literally saying, I did not rape my wife in front of the new housekeeper. Ha 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 ha. It's really crazy ugly at first. If we were the same exact age now in, in 1981, I like to think that we'd be like, Hey, that's still not funny. <laughs> like, that's just gross. And, and the stuff with Susan St. James playing his wife, I understand that it's meant for her to be the voice of everything awful. So George Siegel, who we find out used to be a hippie and had lived with a black woman for a little while and loved her, but then couldn't handle the social pressure of it and was made a deal with J by Jack Warden to basically give up on his values and sell out. And so we're supposed to think George Siegel's a really good guy by the end of it. That's fine, except he bought into horrifying people who are played so awfully that when they finally turn and reveal that eh, they're not so bad towards the end of the film, I don't buy it and I don't care because they're horrible. It's supposed to be Siegel is kind of like the good guy by default, but he's not. He just kind of goes along with his his whole life falling apart in an amiable fashion. And he's kind of nice to Denzel, but he doesn't really speak up. He doesn't do anything proactive. He doesn't tell any of these people they're wrong. Here's the only thing that I, I thought truly landed in the film. And throughout the movie, Denzel kind of leans into the stereotype as well. 
And so everything he puts him through, the apartment, the everything else, it's a lie because Denzel's graduating college. He's successful. He's he's not anything stereotypically that his father thinks he is. And the last five minutes of the movie is him basically saying, um, you haven't even met me yet because everything I've shown you is bullshit. That's the one moment where I feel like Michael Schultz almost earns the rest of the movie where it kind of turns on its head and suddenly Denzel is revealed as a more interesting, faceted character. And it's not the cartoon that it feels like. But so much is so gross, man. It feels like uh, ranting in a racist fashion. And in the last five minutes, you said, oh, I wasn't serious. Some really ugly, nasty shit came out of your mouth. And now you're telling me after all that, oh, we were just kind of playing. See, I think the only way to pull this off, and it's interesting that Bergman was the last guy we talked about. The only way to really pull it off is you have to start with Denzel and it has to be his movie. And we have to see his reaction to Siegel and then realize, oh, no. I got to teach this guy something. Then I think the movie you're with him and you're buying it. But the the way it left me so outside didn't sell until the end. I was uncomfortable for him. And I kept wondering, what did they say to him on set to get this perform? Like, what was the conversation was written? Because I don't like it. I just was cringing through most of it. Yeah. And and put aside the the unsavory racial uh, themes of the movie. Beyond that, it's just a rambly all over the place, not funny. Honestly, I think one of the most important things Michael Schultz did was prove that anybody can make mediocre studio movies. Next up is a movie that was made by another director I'm interested in, mainly because this guy just didn't happen, and you would think it was a given. Uh, I'm talking about Ulu Grosbard's True Confessions. Just hop on Twitter and say, oh, I just watched a movie in which De Niro and Robert Duvall play brothers. De Niro is the priest, or Monsignor, rather, and Duvall is the detective, and it's uh, 1948 L.A., and there are there is a murder, and there is a lot of, it's basically Chinatown. It's the Black Dahlia. It's, they're, like, clearly lifting that as well. It's that entire school of 40s, the history of L.A. through crime and police. There's very little in this film that I have not seen before, but this is a good movie. I really got into it. This is a fetish of mine. One of the things that when I moved to L.A. that I really loved is the fact that I've grown up reading like Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett. And uh, I've loved modern guys like uh, Walter Mosley or Michael Connolly. And of course, Chinatown, the notion of telling this city's history through the corruption underneath it and the bodies that it's built on. I love that shit. James Elroy, of course. But then what I was really taken by is it does a beautiful job of just the little details all the way through. And that's Grosbard for you. Yeah, it's really pretty to look at. This, the period design is fantastic. And, you know, a lot of times we like to rattle through the character actors. But in this film, a lot of the character actors really shine. Charles Durning as the head of the uh, construction company who may or may not be up to uh, uh, parochial malfeasance. Is that a phrase? I just made it up. Uh, Kenneth McMillan as Robert Duvall's potty mouth uh, partner. There's Burgess Meredith, Ed Flanders, Dan Hedaya. Lots of great, uh, just, oh, that guy. Not much for ladies to do in this film. <laughs> no, no. no, well, and it's 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 about a really ugly world for ladies and an ugly time for ladies in Los Angeles and the fact that they were very much traded and treated like um, bargaining tools or like rewards, like treats you could hand out to your friends. And it's it's ugly. It's meant to be kind of ugly. 
You know what I find? There's one really, really interesting moment in this movie when it feels a bit like a scene from The Godfather where De Niro is presiding in, in sorts of sorts over a wedding and uh, the bride is clearly telling him that she's pregnant on her wedding day and she's like looking at him with these beseeching eyes and he says it's okay I give it I give you the blessing and she's like grateful and then he walks away and I'm like that's just the same thing as a mafia don right there just that's the same thing to have that kind of power in the neighborhood well and they do a nice show. John Gregory Dunn who wrote the the book and co-wrote the film adaptation with his wife um, he's fascinated by power, you know, and the way it's been used, especially uh, when tied to money. And I think they do a really good job of tracing that stuff and, and showing how it works. And I think they play with some of the facts and the ideas of the Black Dahlia case in interesting ways. Uh, I'm with you on Durning, man. I think Charles Durning is awesome in this movie. There are two scenes, two two moments between Durning and Duval in this movie because they hate each other. There's two moments, one quiet and one kind of loud. Well, there's a fight between them where I'm scared of Charles Durning now. I Can we just take a second and just just honor the the amazingness of Charles Durning? Oh, we're going to we're going to come back to Charles Durning repeatedly in amazingness. There are so many good moments ahead in this decade for him. Such a fun actor to watch even if the movie's not good or it doesn't matter. Charles Durning is just so much fun to watch. I just didn't realize like this. I love the introduction where they describe him uh, as he looks like a leprechaun and bargains like an Arab. And then you see him on the dance floor and one of the things I love about that cut is Durning and we'll we'll get into this when we get the best little whorehouse in Texas too, but Durning dancing is awesome he was a dance instructor before he was an actor <laughs> there's a delicacy and a real lovely sort of charming uh humor to the dance that to the way he dances he knows what he looks like and he is 100 in control of his body so watching him dance you get a real sense of how how much fun this guy could be and then when he has that fight with duval towards the end of the film i'm genuinely afraid of him it's like watching a wolverine get dropped into a, a thing like he is just he goes for him and you realize he's dangerous there's a real intensity and duval plays it so great because duval's such a shitbag he's so funny he's the detective and he's so cocky he knows for a fact that durning is up to no good and he just like leans in and whispers these little insults and durning turns beat red and wrong <laughs> It's fantastic. One thing I would say if I was, you know, reviewing this traditionally, De Niro gives a good performance, but I can't help but think he's just miscast because he's way too young to be playing like an elder priest Monsignor type. Am I wrong? Am I am I crazy there? It's young men playing old men, and I think they were not at that point yet where they really had that weight, and it's one of the few limitations on them. I will say that the the, the framing story in True Confessions is not it's it's not bad. It's fine. It seems like they were on set and they said, you know what? We're not going to do loads of makeup. Let's just make them look normal, but thin their hair, gray them up, you know, and that's enough. We're, we're, the audience knows what we're going for. They're older. Here's what's amazing. The subject was Roses, 1968. Who is Harry Kellerman and why is he saying those terrible things about me, 1971? Straight Time, 1978. True Confessions, 1981. Falling in Love, 1984. Georgia, 1995, and finally, The Deep End of the Ocean in 1999. One, two, three, four, five, six movies, four Academy Award nominations for actors in his films. That is an insane record for Ulu Grosbard. Wow, it's weird that he didn't, he hasn't worked more. He's made some really good films. Yeah, it ended up being stage. I think that was his great love. And I, I think when you look at the performances he gets, some of his scripts aren't great. True Confessions isn't a great script. Falling in Love isn't a great script. But he is so good with behavior and he is so good at letting an actor find a, a space to, to really 
dig into a character. That's why I think those nominations happened. And I think stage offered him better material for that. I do wish that we were going to get to Georgia when we are doing this podcast, because it's one of the great Jennifer Jason Lee performances. And I think it's him. If we, we turned you on to Prince of the city last month as part of a, uh, like underrated, underappreciated epic crime drama, uh, then, you know, throw true confessions on that list too. If you enjoy stuff like, you know, De Niro's once upon a time in America, uh, you know, anything like that period piece, crime loyalty in the old neighborhood, true confessions is solid. All right, so next up, uh, we're talking about a movie made in 1979 that then took a little while to make it to America. It is the Mel Gibson film, Tim. I only know you don't like me anymore, that's all. You like Dad better than you like me now. How could I ever stop liking you? You did when you met Dad. Believe me, that's not true. I like your Dad, but I could never like him as much as I like you. You don't like me anymore. Tim, you like now. I've seen you hugging him all the time. And I want you to hug me. But you don't. But you do it to him. I know that you miss your mom a lot. But it's not in the same way that your dad does. I know how dad feels. He wants to die so he can lie next to mom. I like to refer to it as a Piper Laurie film. You know what? Piper Laurie's awesome in this movie. She is great. You, most people will know her as the psycho mom from Carrie. I, I love her in this. Tim... Is he slow? Is that the way we would describe Tim? I'm going to be delicate here. Watching this, I kept thinking about Tropic Thunder. Okay. He is, Mel Gibson plays a a 20-year-old guy who is mentally handicapped, who uh, ends up falling in love with a 40-year-old American woman who's come to uh, live in the small town in Australia where he works, and his family gets very protective. I think the movie's kind of a giant hunk of cheese. It's (laughs) It's really not great. Uh, I'm glad we're mentioning it. Piper Laurie is great. Mel Gibson is not bad. Yeah, but he's very, very young and pretty. It's both very conventional in its plotting and then also kind of weird how it goes off on some, like, ephemeral fairy tale tip. It's not shot very nicely. It's from the writer of The Thornbirds, which is a much better miniseries. That's a good show. Dig up that. But Tim got resurrected and thrown into American theaters basically because uh, Gallipoli and uh, Mad Max made some money. Because if you remember, there was a lot of hype back then about how, oh, my God, Australian films are amazing now. And I think this kind of caught that wave where thanks to Mel Gibson being in a couple of the really great ones, anything he touched was going to end up in theaters here. Um, If you have a fondness for movies like this that that really are sweet intentioned, uh, if not particularly great, Tim's okay. Drew, we're now going to move into a big block of horror movies in September. That's great news, right? Horror movies? Five of them. Hot. Damn. Hey, let's go watch a horror movie. Let's go see two. And then I'll see if you can sleep over my house. I'll ask my mom and then we'll rent. Oh, it'll be great. And we'll go see two more on Saturday. (laughs) It's funny because that's how I watch these. I watch them in bits and pieces and all jammed together. I'm excited that we finally got here because I know you've told the story about how your grandmother taped movies for you. And one of these movies was a big movie for you because she put it on a tape and gave it to you. Yeah, and it's the only good one in this batch. These are all none of these are what I would consider buried treasure. These are all in some way or another (laughs) crappy. Let's go on. The first one is a sleazoid, low budget, low creativity, tiresome title called Don't Go in the Woods. Don't go in the woods. Something's out there. Something evil. Something so terrifying only screams can describe it. Hunters become the hunted. Every camper is fair game. 
when a walking nightmare turns a lush green forest crimson red with the fresh blood of each new victim. Don't go in the woods. It's not just a warning. It's the only way to stay alive. Seriously, though, don't go in the woods. It's a very silly place. It's rare to see a film that combines the ridiculously boring and the suddenly bizarre like this movie. <laughs> I watched Don't Go in the Woods after I watched our next film. And so it seemed a little more mellow. If I had seen Don't Go in the Woods first, I would have wondered what the hell they were doing. It's so absurd and it is so willfully goofy that I don't know if they meant for any of the horror to actually land. And the rest of it is so silly that I can't, I don't really enjoy this tone. You know, we talk a lot about sequels and knockoffs and ripoffs. And while a lot of the studio knockoffs and retreads were kind of lame and lazy, this was like eight guys in Montana saw Friday the 13th and shot something in the woods the next day. Yes. And that, and that's how it feels. And like I said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to spend a lot of energy beating the crap out of it because it's it's so ridiculous. And I can't imagine anybody on board was serious about the tone. They were serious about making a movie that they could release. But I don't think beyond that, it's meant to be even remotely regarded seriously. About the dubbing in this movie, Drew. Jesus Christ. <laughs> and you guys. Oh, all right. Don't go in the woods. My apologies to the horror fans who love these little cheese balls, but we're going to get rough. The next film is one I now Drew, I would say that prior to starting this podcast, I had seen probably 90% of the American horror films released in the 80s. Maybe less, but about that. I had never seen Home Sweet Home. It's 7 a.m. in Los Angeles, and our top story continues to be the intensive police dragnet for an armed and dangerous escaped mental patient. 26-year-old Jay Jones escaped from the Hobart State Hospital for the criminally insane last night after killing an attendant and leaving a guard in critical condition. Jones was committed to Hobart eight years ago after a lengthy and well-publicized trial following the bludgeoning death of both of his parents. He's extremely dangerous, probably armed. He could be on PCP. Jones is Caucasian, 16-3. This is so wacko. Jake Steinfeld, whom you all know from Body by Jake, uh, he's also been in movies and TV shows. Basically, he was on every sitcom in the 70s. Okay, yeah, he plays a PCP addict, psycho, mental patient fugitive. The movie opens with, like, just him in the car, just, like, roaring and sweating. It's just bizarre. I'm almost sure you don't take PCP by directly injecting it to your tongue. But, but okay, I'll go with you. So. Now, this this seems like somebody saw Halloween and said, quick, quick, all the holidays are being snatched up. Let's do Thanksgiving. This movie has a... I guess it's a family. It's a group of people. We're never really clear who they are. I a honestly, for, for 15 minutes, Scott, I thought it was supposed to be an insane asylum. I thought... I thought it was like a mental hospital in the woods or something. I didn't know what was Like, happening. oh, oh, wait, she said uncle. And then there's a kid with this weird white face. He's either trying to be a mime or Peter He's Chris. He's a mime who runs around playing electric guitar and talking nonstop, which, sorry, but that's a kind of a terrible mime. That's... <laughs> But I looked him up, and the only other movie he's ever done, he also played a mime. I think he was an actual mime who they cast. I just don't think they told him, don't wear your mime makeup. Mime shouldn't <laughs> talk quite that much. Uh, 
And uh, also of of minor note uh, is that little Vanessa Shaw, uh, who would grow up to be a very good actor, uh, she plays one of the little kids in this movie, and that's about the only interesting footnote. And the one murder that made me laugh, I did the old lady at the beginning is ridiculous. It doesn't really work. The one, the one that I had to back up because it made me go to the car. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jake Steinfeld like body slams the hood of a car while someone's fixing it. And I just, it's, it's, so, so, it's, it's so unexpected. And it comes out of nowhere and he jumps on the hood and then just takes off. <laughs> he runs away. Yeah. And um, I gotta, he, and we gotta give credit special shout out. One of the few horror films from the era directed by a woman. Our next one is slightly better, but not very good. It's called Night School. When darkness descends on the city, something happens to the girls who attend night school. You're not walking home alone tonight, are you? After what happened? We'll be all right. Something secret. Something terrifying. Prepare for a lesson in terror. Night school. I think it's the slickest of the the. Oh, oh yeah. Well, this was shot with a professional camera. Absolutely, yeah. yes. <laughs> and it was turned on, and they had sound equipment. <laughs> okay. Aside from the fact that it stars a young Rachel Ward, who would of course go on to be a big star of some of some good stuff, uh, good films in the Thorbirds, right? Yeah, and Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, and uh, that great Fortress cable movie that we got. Uh, Rachel Ward, very good actor. This is just that same old story of half a slasher, half a boring whodunit thriller. I will give it that it has a kind of a cool twist, I guess. I I didn't see that ending coming. But beyond that is a so perfunctory, oh, I forgot my purse in my lab. I got to go back to the lab and get my purse. Oh, it's not good. It's not good. It's really slick, though, comparatively. And it's funny how when you're watching all of these together and you get to night school, it's like Stanley Kubrick shot it compared to the compared to Home Sweet Home. This is literally The Shining. It's so. It is a shock. You, you go, oh, that's right. Movies look good. I forgot for a minute. Um, the thing with Rachel Ward, she, there was a whole group of uh, actresses who, and this happens with every generation of actresses, you end up getting uh, lumped together because you're basically fighting for the same roles in the exact same films. And I always liked that as sort of an Australian uh, she had a very different vibe than a lot of Hollywood actors, and she had that sort of smokers thing. She was cool. Rachel Ward was just cool. Uh, it's always funny to me to see who who went through slasher films in the early eighties because it's like soap operas or it's like improv comedies in the you know right now it's like they are talent pools because there's so many of them being made and inevitably you're going to get some really talented people who kind of move through them. Well, one thing I'd like to note, and I'd like to if we can remember to, I, I would like to note when celebrated or accomplished directors and their final films. For example, Ken Hughes, who directed this film, and it's not poorly directed, it's just really dull. It's just not an interesting story. But it is, like you said, well shot, moves fairly quickly. Ken Hughes directed Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. He directed the original, uh, par, uh, co-directed the original Casino Royale of Human Bondage. He directed some really good films, and this was his final uh, theatrical feature. All right, so here we go, Scott. It's finally time. We're here. I have been waiting for this eagerly. Let's get into The Boogans. Some things shouldn't be disturbed. Some questions shouldn't be asked. 
sometimes it's better not to be so curious to let well enough alone. If you go looking for trouble, chances are you're going to find it. The Boogans Radar. I love this era of the, the uh, Canadian horror films. You know, uh, they also give us My Bloody Valentine and Humongous, which we'll cover soon. But um, The Boogans, I remember it being not bad. It didn't really stand out in my memory much as a kid. Uh, lukewarm. I, I saw it again about 10 years ago. Somebody, Anchor Bay, probably put the DVD out. And I, I think I was bored with it. Watched it again a week ago. Uh, I like it with the caveat that it does take a while to get to the horror. It is, and it's not a slow burn. It's not what you. It's not an intentional slow burn, but just basically a lot of rigmarole before we get to the monsters. But the characters are actually fairly well written and pretty well, likable. It's, it's more like the boogin. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. More like I, monster. I, I'm talking about the actors. All right. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> but would you agree that, like, even though there is a lot of setup, that at least it's not really dreary, dull setup. I think you're a little fonder of this one than I am. I'll tell you what was driving me nuts, though, during the entire film. I Don't not... you say, don't say the dog. No, not the dog. I could not, for the life of me, remember where I'd seen Trish before, the, the lead actor. And I'm a huge fan of soap. When the shoe finally dropped and I'm like, oh, my God, it's it's Carol. It's the one who had the Jody's baby. And then suddenly for the rest of the movie, it was ruined because I hate Carol. I hate her. So... It's so funny that she's playing a perfectly sweet, nice final girl in this movie. She's fine. And here's an interesting footnote. She married her director from this film, The Boogans, who is James L. Conway, whom uh, we'll remember from a couple weeks ago, months ago. We did Earthbound, which he directed. Uh, and he is now one of the most prolific. He's directed probably at least one episode of every show you've ever seen. <laughs> well, it just cracks me up that... that you can have such strong affection for, or attachments to uh, a television role, especially somebody that you watched when you were a certain age, that then whatever they do in film after that or beside that, when you discover it later, it's kind of the other thing is written on top of it, no matter how hard you try. I will always, I mean, uh, Jack Nicholson is, of course, ridiculously versatile, but when I see him grin, I see R.P. McMurphy. That's who I see one flew over the cuckoo's nest. And that's the compliment to him because that performance is so goddamn perfect. So what Scott's saying here is that Trish from the Boogans is as good as R.P. McMurphy from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I'm saying that Rebecca Balding <laughs> is a beautiful, charming <laughs> actress. And I wish she had had a slightly bigger career. She's very likable. Um, and that's important. In a horror movie, you, want a, you, you can have a couple of people who are obnoxious or hateful because you need to kill somebody off in act two. But for the most part, you want them to be relatively likable or relatable. And I think that's why, that's how this movie gets through about 45 to 50 minutes of a lot of yap, yap, yap. Basically, it's about a mine has been reopened and 70 years earlier, uh, there had been a horrible uh, cave-in and now these creatures, or as Drew would kindly put it, one creature, uh, escapes from the mine and just wreaks havoc on this small Canadian town. Once it gets going, the last half of this movie is pretty kick-ass. It has some really cool kills. It has some the monster, silly, but also kind of well-designed. Well I, I don't know. And I gotta say... Thought it was a poodle. It's not. It's a Bichon Freeze. One of the coolest dogs of the decade in this movie. I'm not kidding. That dog, When that dog does this bit where it opens a closet by itself, it grabs a shoe, then it gets up on a stool, and then leaps over the back rail onto the bed. It's... I love the dog. Also, Drew, the horny guy. The guy who plays the horny guy who only talks about having sex. How is that not Dana Carvey? Holy crap. 
<laughs> yeah, I could see that uh, 100%. And all right, we, we got to get to this last one. And I, dude, I am, I'm in shock a little bit. Sometimes I have no idea what I'm putting on. I'll just put a movie on because it's next on the list. And I don't do a lot of homework because I kind of want to see the movie. And then I'll go look things up or then I'll find things out or whatever. Kind of wish somebody trigger warned me because what the hell just happened? The Unseen. Please. The unseen. There has never been a nightmare as real, a terror as evil, a film as frightening as the darkness where it lives. The unseen. Yeah, there. That's probably good. You should probably leave it that way. What is this movie about? Um, people are in a house. There's something in the basement. What is it? <laughs> okay, here's what I got. You're right, though. Three <laughs> women reporters stay at a kook's house during some sort of Danish festival in suburban California. Already. Really? Yeah. Really? Barbara, Barbara Bach. <laughs> people would know her from, as Daisy Duke, of course, from Dukes of Hazzard. Um, she is the uh, the alpha female. Uh, and the people that she's staying with, she's staying with, of all people, Sydney Lassick. Let me tell you something. If you knock on a door and Sydney Lassick answers, that is not a house you want to sleep in. So funny that you just brought up One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest because, uh, of course, he's awesome in that movie. And he's actually not bad here. Yeah, no, no, his performance is not bad. It's just written so one note unsavory. Like, yeah, he's creepy. That's it. Hi, my hotel, Lunatic Manor, would like to welcome you. Uh, would you like the deluxe peep suite? The movie is just basically inept and dull. Uh, so so poor, in fact, that the man who would go on to direct Friday the 13th Part 5 took his name off the movie. That's And that's saying something. He kept his name on Friday the 13th 5, but this, this he had to take his name off of. Um, and what bothers me the most about this movie is that it's just a very tiresome, creepy old house type story with some bizarre underpinnings, and then all of a sudden, a mentally handicapped misfit from the basement, not not deformed, not monstrous, just, just mentally handicapped, he turns out to be the raving maniac, and there's a scene where he gets, like, a board with a nail through it into his head, and I just turned the movie off. I was repulsed by it. And, you know, part of the reason it bothered me so much is because that psycho was played by the great Stephen First, who just passed away last week, and boy, did he deserve better roles after Animal House than The Unseen. A lot of what it comes down to is how you execute the monster or how you execute the reveal or how when you get to the horror, you actually finally do it, what your tone is. And like Night School, I'll give it a pass in some ways because it's a it's a slick, completely soulless slasher film that knows exactly what that's supposed to be. The Boogans, it's a monster movie that builds to a monster. And I don't love the monster, but it, it there it is. There's the monster and you have scenes with it. And it, the unseen, it's just not right what it finally builds to and it's it's uncomfortable because i think it's such a misconception yeah and and it's an interesting thing how guys like you and i who are both raised as horror nuts we can watch hardcore friday the 13th and nastier even much nastier movies and you don't walk away with a sense of oh man that was morally unpleasant like nihilistic and there's just the more we talk about it the more we might pique people's interest to it uh and if you're curious and if you enjoy this one god bless you uh, I think it's uh, a handful of good actors and Barbara Bach stuck in a piece of crap. 
Now, on the other hand, our next movie is a handful of truly great actors stuck in an awesome movie people just missed when it came out. I am talking about shifting gears to the awesome and underseen Walter Hill exploitation movie, Southern Comfort. In the bayous of Louisiana, two innocent groups of people are about to collide. The people who live there. Will you back in here? This is our home. And the National Guardsmen on weekend maneuvers. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to fight my way out of here. Southern Comfort. Experience it. Rated R. For years, I just kind of dismissed this one as kind of a deliverance knockoff. But it's not at all. It's a really smart, intense story about a bunch of National Guardsmen who uh, mess with the wrong Cajuns while they're just doing their exercises and live to regret it very briefly. And it's not so much deliverance as it is deliverance meets Lord of the Flies with uh, like a military angle. Louisiana 1973, it's kind of unavoidable that you, you're going to think about Vietnam while you're watching this, uh, especially because the soldiers that we send into the bayou are armed with blanks. They are literally impotent. As soon as they pick a fight, they pick a fight with guys who are armed with actual guns and who live in the bayous and know them. Uh, it's hard to miss that as a comparison, even though Walter Hill, since the movie came out, has repeatedly said, it's not about Vietnam. Stop that. It's not that I think he was definitely making an allegory. I think that making a movie in 1981 about this subject from a decade earlier, it was impossible not to have it bouncing around inside them. Like these guys all lived through that era anyway. Plus, it's not up to the artist to tell us what we interpret. If I saw this movie and I see an allegory for the Vietnam War, that's legit. Okay? That's what I see in art. I didn't necessarily see that in this film. I just saw a really entertaining, dark piece of escapism. Just a darkly fun, kick-ass horror movie with a lot of suspense where you're... Who do we got here? Keith Carradine, Powers Booth, who passed away last month. Great actor. Fred Ward, Frank Seals, T.K. Carter... Uh, Peter Coyote. And the thing with Frank Seals, again, like with uh, Rebecca Belding in The Boogans, it was driving me nuts the entire time when I looked him up and I realized he was Dexter from Silver Spoons. I had kind of a moment where I'm like, oh, my God, that's what's bouncing around inside me. That is the thing that I couldn't shake. But what it was was the echo of him being sort of a prissy, ultra fastidious character Watching him play a National Guardsman melting down, I was having a weird echo. He's really, really good in this. He's one of the best. He passed away, unfortunately, in 1990. But Franklin Seals, very good actor. Alan Autry, who plays one of the other guys here, former NFL player for the Packers, was really from Louisiana. And I think there's a really lovely, authentic feel to it. Uh, Lewis Smith, uh, who is in the film and was also in Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai, I knew from Chattanooga. I, I knew his younger brother. And... Uh, Lewis Smith in this is sort of that the last guy you want in a situation with you. He does that really well. Uh, and two of the Cajuns are played by character actors you'll recognize, Sonny Landham and the great Brian James. So not one woman in the film, not one. Yeah, someone dances with Keith Carradine at the end, yeah. Yeah, yeah, my bad. Late, late in the film, I don't want to give anything away, but yeah, later in the film there are. Uh, but it, it's just a stripped-down, uh, simple, straightforward militaristic action movie. I think it's fantastic. I, I think this is our pick of the show, right? Pick of the month. And I don't, I don't have a lot to say about it other than really, you should see it. It's great. And I love the way he captures the dynamics of men. And the movie got criticized, and a lot of Walter Hill films have been criticized for this, for being fairly surface. The, the Warriors took a ton of shit when it came out. 
you know, we love these movies and it's one of those things where it's evolved over time and people have come around to the way Walter Hill made movies. The driver is justly celebrated now, but I, I think he dealt with movies that were stripped down. He wanted them as simple as he could make them. And I think he liked seeing how little he could give you in terms of information and still make it resonate. Certainly when you read him on the page, Walter Hill as a screenwriter was the same way. He didn't use an extra word, and I don't think he uses an extra beat in this movie unless he has to. But what I like about it is that most of the soldiers, there's a lot of gray area. There isn't just the noble one, the badass, the craven weirdo. I mean, there are a few that are very thinly drawn, but most of them have really interesting shades of gray so that while this is going on, you're actually interested in how each of the ones are going to react to the next uh, attack. I don't love every Walter Hill film equally, but I love Walter Hill, and this is one of those movies that is why I love him. Okay, I'm going to run to the kitchen real quick to get something to drink, and I'm going to do it in slow motion and with a synthesizer playing. Because our next film is Chariots of Fire. Chariots of Fire has received unanimous critical acclaim. Majestic, masterful, triumphant, and joyful, says the Los Angeles Times. The New York Times calls it rousing and invigorating. ABC TV says you'll be riveted, enthralled, and you'll cheer like crazy. It's for everyone, says Newsweek. And the New York Daily News promises it will lift your spirits to a new high. Chariots of Fire. This is, of course, the film that would go on to win Best Picture for 1981. For years, I mean, probably for more than 20 years, it's just a film I had no interest in. Just none. All I knew is that it won Best Picture. It was celebrated by old grown-ups. Critics loved it. And it was, uh, you know, refined and art house and blah, 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 blah. Same reason I never saw Gandhi, which we'll get to next year. When I watched it, I was like, you're an idiot. This movie is really freaking good. Why do you, like, close your mind to, like, is it because I think I'm not mature enough to appreciate a drama about adults? No. Can, Drew will explain why Chariots of Fire has kind of a backlash among film fans. Put aside the Oscar stuff. This is a really interesting film. I am less drawn to stories of class in England. And I and I think part of it is because England is a very class-based system, and there is a distinct focus on class, especially coming out of World War I when the film is set. There is a real sense here of where people fit. And a lot of the movie is about defining yourself by what you do, as well as who you are in regards to other people. The racers in this movie all have reasons that the racing is important to them that aren't just they want to win a race or they want money or they want fame. It comes down to respect and it comes down to place. And I think the world that Hugh Hudson paints is richly evoked. I think all the details of this are very, very interesting. I will admit that sitting through it this time in particular... I just don't care for the world. Like, I don't want to be in Oxford with people singing. That is a world that is so alien to what I'm interested in. I recognize it's really well told. And I think the universal stuff is what does land. It's weird because as a sports film, it breaks a lot of the rules. It's about two runners uh, who compete in the 1924 Olympics. Uh, one's Jewish, one's Catholic. That's pretty much it. It's their trials and tribulations on their way to the Olympics. And the period design is unbelievable. I don't know if I really connect with it emotionally, 
but I think it's an impressive film, and I'm glad I watched it. Out of Africa was another one that for years and years I never watched it, and that one I legitimately don't like. <laughs> well, I don't blame you. Chariots of Fire, when you talk about it as a sports film, it doesn't play by the rules that a lot of sports films do in that it is not interested in necessarily setting the stakes for the race and making you root in one person or over another or trying to get you invested in, I want this guy to win. I think it is far more focused on what it is personally to run and to push your body to a certain place and to demand something of yourself that you aren't even sure you can give. Ben Cross spends a lot of this movie scared, and he's scared not of his competitor. He's scared of himself, and I think that that is something we don't see in a lot of sports films. I do think it's interesting. Hudson, in general, is a guy that we'll talk about uh, with his other films in this decade. The success of this movie did him no favors. I think if he had stayed a small English filmmaker who kind of focused on what he was interested in, not come to Hollywood, not been seduced, not turned into Hugh Hudson, Oscar winning genius. I think he might've had a longer and more interesting career. Chariots of Fire beat out some pretty good films for best picture. It beat out uh, Atlantic city, which we've covered uh, on golden pond and reds, which we'll get to soon and Raiders of the lost ark. And I think that's why a lot of people have a problem with because it's where I tapped out. I was 11 by the time the Oscars rolled around uh, in 82. And here's why that's ridiculous, because either the Oscars are important and what you love not winning means something or the Oscars aren't important. And what do you care what won? And I got hung up in the the weird feedback loop of the Oscars suck and they're not important because what I love didn't win. That's not how it works. It's not, it doesn't. So I just eventually I had to let go of it this early because Chariots of Fire drove me a little insane. I got taken to the theater to see it, and I hated it. Nadia. Yeah. See, if I saw this as a kid, I would have been bored stiff. I respect it now. It is not a world that I am drawn to or particularly enamored of. And it's like the Merchant Ivory films. I can respect a lot of the Merchant Ivory films without feeling the passion for that time and place that some people do. No, I get that a lot where I appreciate the craftsmanship and the performances and the, you know, the, the, the production design. But I, while still acknowledging that it's not really connecting to me on a personal level, and that's kind of Chariots of Fire, uh, just for, for the sake of trivia, it won Best Picture. Best Screenplay, Best Costume Design, and Best Score by Vangelis. Well, and that score was turned into the pop culture joke of the 80s. Like, it got used so many times in so many ways and eventually used so often that I think it it hurts this movie accidentally. Because in the movie, the music is truly innovative and interesting. And Vangelis, all the scores he wrote, I think are terrific pieces of film writing. Uh, I love the score, even though it is almost cliche at this point, but I still do think it's a beautiful piece of music. So this next one uh, is probably better known to film fans for the things it's connected to than actually for them having seen it. Uh, and that's because it was written by Lawrence Kasdan. That's because it played an important part in Raiders of the Lost Ark being made in the first place. And it's the very first film, technically, that had the name Amblin on it. We're talking about Continental Divide. John Belushi has a new beat. The Rocky Mountains. Where the air is fresh. The bear stole all my cigarettes! And the natives are friendly. Where he falls for a girl who wants him back on his own side of the continental divide. Never touch anyone on the street. They'll think you need help and they'll kill you. John Belushi, Blair Brown, Continental Divide, rated PG. Now playing at a theater near you. This movie just escaped me then. 
and it escapes me now. It seems to be a wannabe Tracy Hepburn kind of romantic screwball throwback. John Belushi plays a grizzled Chicago reporter based on Mike Royko, I believe. He he's given an assignment because he's digging too deep into local politics. So he's given an assignment to uh, go to this mountain cabin and interview this recluse of a bird expert as played by Blair Brown. Belushi does what he can and Blair Brown is quite good. He's woefully miscast as a romantic lead. He's not amiable. He's not likable. He's constrained and not very entertain, not very interesting. I think with a different lead actor, as much as I love the late John Belushi. This is a throwback to that era where Newspaper Man was like a manly movie job. You know, if you were a great newspaper man, you owned the fucking city, you got into restaurants, everybody talked to you on the street, every secret was yours. All this business in the first act of Belushi just roaming Chicago streets. He's the man. Chicago is his city, man. He knows every cop, every junkie. He knows everyone. Two guys stop to rob him and then don't because they recognize him from his column in the newspaper. Yep. I get what he's trying to do here as a throwback, but and certainly once he gets him up to the cabin, he's a hard smoking, hard drinking guy from the city. She lives outdoors. She's everything's clean air. And I get it. You're supposed to have opposites. There's going to be sparks. They have zero chemistry. Zero. It's uncomfortable. It's Kasdan. So a lot of the banter is actually pretty solid, but she's playing against. I hate to say this, but she's playing against like nothing. There's nothing there. I love John Belushi, too. I'm like you. I grew up with just an innate love of John Belushi, and I almost can't explain it. I can explain most of the actors I adore. I can point at the work of theirs that I love, and certainly there's things of Belushi's that I can point at, like SNL or Animal House. I can point at moments where it really connected and worked, but the older I get and the more objective I am about the filmography he left behind, John Belushi is largely defined by missed opportunity. Do you think that between Continental Divide and then his next film, which would be his last film, John Appleton's Neighbors, do you think it was a concerted effort on his part to, I don't want to, I want to be more the straight man, I want to be oh, 100%. more... No. Yeah, 100%. And in this, it's the only movie that he made, and I, I hate talking about this, but this is uh, inherent to talking about Belushi, this is the only movie he made sober. It shows there is a different level of connection here, and certainly his eyes, when you look at Belushi's eyes in this movie... He's both more awake and aware than I really think I've ever seen him in anything else and a little bit terrified. There is this weird thing where he knows this isn't him. Like, it's just not it doesn't fit him. And I think he's trying really hard to make it work while knowing on some level it's not. Yeah, I wouldn't call this a bad film. I wouldn't. It's just very basic. Uh, Michael Apted directed it, who is a. You know, aside from the Up documentary series, which are fantastic, the guy has a great uh, filmography of eclectic. He's very, like, journeyman director, and I mean that as a compliment. He's kind of hamstrung. You know, he's got Belushi to deal with. He's got this hot young screenwriter who's uh, who's tight with the executive producer. It's very weird to see a very safe, very vanilla John Belushi movie. And I, I honestly wish that he had lived long enough for us to get to the, here's his TV series. And look, now here's the movie he made with the big, awesome director. And now here's the comeback. And it all would have happened. He would have had his comeback or his resurgence a la what Wes Anderson did for Bill Murray. Now, we're going to do three films back to back here to wrap everything up where we're going to talk about movie moms. And it just kind of accidentally all came together like this. But it's a really interesting juxtaposition of three totally different takes on it. We're going to start with 
a movie that if you were going to compare it to like two Jonathan Demi films that you were to marry, it's like Swing Shift. If Swing Shift turned into Silence of the Lambs for 15 minutes. So uh, here we go with Raggedy Man. On Oscar night, she was the toast of the nation. Now she's the talk of the town. Academy Award winner Sissy Spacek is Nita Longley. The eyes of Gregory, Texas, are upon her. God, I feel so, so caught. Tonight? Yeah, tonight. What the hell? We can't put it off forever. She has so much to fight for. And so many to fight. Academy Award winner Sissy Spacek is Nita Longley. Raggedy Man. Raggedy Man is a, I would say, deliberately paced, quiet, romantic drama starring the great Sissy Spacek and the not bad Eric Roberts, uh, directed by her husband, Jack Fisk, a great art director who's now directing his first Terrific. Feature. Beautifully shot. Art direction is fantastic. It looks, it's a really lovely looking movie. Uh, and then... In Act 3, it almost... <laughs> what? We're not going to spoil anything because I like this film and I'd like people Yeah, I'm not going to gonna say what happens. I'm just going to say tone-wise, holy shit. Yeah. Um, all of a sudden, <laughs> let's just say that Tracy Walter and William Sanderson are in this movie for a reason and it's not to borrow a cup of sugar. I'll say this about it. I think that um, Fisk's gift, uh, he's a, a major player in the success of the films that he worked on because he had such a great sense of how to uh, create space for drama. And in Raggedy Man... His sense of production design does a wonderful job. She is, it's World War II. She's a divorced mother who's living with her two sons, and she runs the only switchboard in this small town. And she's not allowed to leave the town. She's not allowed to quit her job. She's being told that she's frozen in place. She has to live here because it's wartime and everybody has to do stuff they don't love. And her job is everything. It's basically 24 hours a day. She's always on call. Her kids are resentful. She's lonely. There's a lot of just pressure on her as a divorced woman in this particular time and place and a lot of speculation about her. I think even if that was the whole movie, it would have been really interesting. And I kind of like Eric Roberts. He's very young. He's super pretty in this. Like if you are an Eric Roberts fan, this is probably the, the most cleaned up the studios ever got him for a movie. And he's charming. I really like him with the two kids. And God, Henry Thomas from E.T. is so charming as one of her sons here. So cute. I oh, mean, my God. Did he even have to audition after this movie for E.T.? Just run this movie and give that kid the job. Well, and he's got that perfect little when he gets angry and his face. He is so good at just playing the big emotions. Um, do you uh, do you think that the third act throws the movie off the rails or does it work? Well, it's crazy because that's the title of the film is all about that. And ultimately, when you look at the movie afterwards, there's hints all the way through. There's clues and there's setup, and it's meant to, you know, there's meant to be foreshadowing. So I don't think it's out of place when it turns. Man, does it turn? All right. Next up, this guy is a genre. He's not even a, a writer. We're, we're going to dip back into the Neil Simon genre with only when I laugh. It's the best Neil Simon since The Goodbye Girl. It's about kids acting like grown-ups. I think those two boys are following us. And grown-ups being treated like kids. I'm Holly Hines, and this is my sister. I'm a freshman. I'm a senior. Yeah. 
I thought you were the older one. Neil Simon's Only When I Laugh. Are you worried? Only when I laugh. Only when I laugh. Rated R. Now playing at a theater near you. I watched this one last night, Drew, and I would like to ask you what you, on a five-star scale, what would I give this movie? Maybe a two? two maybe a two and a half. Um, yeah, at most. And that's just because the, the three leads are so fantastic. I, I would give it I would give it about a two, two and a half as well, except for one scene, which is clearly from the original play, which is better than anything else that happens in the movie. Marsha Mason uh, plays a celebrated actress who is coming out of rehab for alcoholism. She is greeted by her lovable gay friend, James Coco, her fastidious best friend uh, as played by Joan Hackett and her uh, wayward daughter as played by Christy McNichol. Yeah, and the whole thing is that because she was an alcoholic and, and a working actor for so long and was so unavailable, her daughter basically grew up with the ex-husband and now wants to, for her last year of high school, move in with mom because mom is coming out of 12 weeks of recovery and is fine now. You know where it's going. One of my college professors used to say, that's a premise, not a plot. It, that, is that enough? No, it's just a vehicle for Marsha Mason, who is great. This movie earned her her fourth Oscar nomination. Uh, uh, she worked frequently with her then-husband, Neil Simon, and she owns this movie. She's great. The supporting performances are also good. It's just that the screenplay is so push-button, cliche, stereotype. You know, this was after Days in Wine and Roses. This was after other movies about alcoholism and dependence. This is literally just a greatest hits of struggling woman who is going to fall off the wagon and we're going to watch. Genuinely, there's nothing new about it. I will say, the scene where it happens... The actual scene, all set inside that apartment with uh, both of her friends and with her daughter and her daughter's first date, that's where she earns the Oscar nomination. But in that, that sequence, that scene is mercilessly long. That scene is like it's a. But that's the play. That honestly, that's that's Neil Simon. That's what ruins the film. That scene. If you make that scene half that long, it's twice as interesting. A. That is the genre. You're watching a stage play, and clearly, that is the play. The gingerbread lady that this was based on was that sequence, um, because it was a shorter play. It's not one of his full length ones. That's what Simon does. He puts people in rooms and lets them talk for 25 minutes. No, I guess you're right. And most of the Neil Simon movies that I love are very funny. And therefore, I can forgive the staginess of the adaptation. This is not a comedy, but the behavior in that scene. Watch Mason. It's unreal. The avalanche and the way she steals drinks and the way she starts to sneak sips and the way once she makes the commitment to I'm off the wagon, the way she rides it down. She burns her world down over the course of that sequence. The dialogue is almost irrelevant. It's behavior. The movie's not great, but if you if you really love Mason, watch it for the one scene. And now, finally, we're going to wrap it up with perhaps the biggest mother of the 80s, and I, I mean that. What's wire hangers doing in this closet when I told you? No wire hangers ever! 300! Yes, mommy dearest. When I asked you to call me that, I wanted you to mean it. Joan Crawford, the most dramatic role of her life, was her life. 
Frank Kiblons presents Faye Dunaway as Joan Crawford in Mommy Dearest. How do you begin to talk about what is considered among like the top five box office? All right. First off, let's clarify for our listeners, some of whom might not know. A bomb is a film that uh, loses money. A turkey is a film that everyone generally agrees is terrible. This film was not a bomb. This film made good money. Not only made good money, but it has had a really healthy afterlife. Like it is, it is constantly in print. It is constantly available, and that that's one of the ways you know a movie has, to some degree, landed is when it's always in print. Studios don't do that with movies that nobody's asking for. Faye Dunaway stars as uh, Hollywood legend Joan Crawford. And it tells the allegedly fact-based story of how she adopted two children and then proceeded to make their lives a living hell. And I believe that she she did, but there's lots of arguments about very specific things in this film that arg- people argue did not happen. Well, there's a good chunk of this movie that happens before Christina's even born that is, I, I, I guess, I guess you did your legwork, but... Um... There's a lot, there's a lot of lead up where there's a lot of behavior she was never around for. My question to you is this, is this a legitimate biopic, albeit a bad one, or is it just tacky posthumous character assassination? The book that Christina wrote is, I think, worse than the movie. The the book is a poison pill. It is really unpleasant and paints a picture of Joan Crawford as a monster, a picture that has been somewhat assuaged by other accounts over time. Uh, She sounds like she was a difficult woman, no matter what. I have a friend who laid cable uh, for Faye Dunaway at her house. She's a difficult woman. It's probably a good fit. But what does that mean? And I think a great version of this movie would have been about being Joan Crawford and having that name, a difficult woman, and what it meant and how you earned it. And I think they get closest to it in in one scene here where after a husband dies, she tells Pepsi that she's not getting off the board of directors and that she's going to continue to make money and, and work with them you do get a sense that this woman understood that in order to get anything she wanted and to have anything she wanted to be anything she wanted meant she had to fight like a junkyard dog. The system was built in a certain way where she had to be bigger and meaner and louder to get anything done. I think Faye Dunaway is trying to do a fair job. And I think Faye Dunaway does in certain ways push back against the text itself I think the text is a hit piece, and I I think it's a hit piece from a position of a child who was traumatized and genuinely does not have affection for this person that they're writing about. So, All right, Drew, let's do this for our listeners, because this is important. This is not the kind of thing that you generally learn from just reading film reviews, but what is it? I have a list in my head, and I'm sure you do too. What is it about Mommy Dearest that makes it, quote unquote, bad? Other movies, you get to a set piece and it's a dance number or it's a big comedy sequence with, you know, all the moving parts and all the characters working together or it's an action scene or whatever. The set pieces here are child abuse. And so the movie is built on this escalating sense of we're going to get more child abuse any minute now. Here it comes. The clock's going. There it is. Child abuse. And and it gets bigger each time. I think that's part of it. And I think that. Frank Perry, the director, I think what he was going for was, let's make it very pulpy and very shrill and over the top and shocking and like an exploitation film from 1947. There's a lot of the tone that is, yeah, the women's pictures and sort of played in this this heightened uh, state of emotion. I think you're right about that. The dialogue is just poor. 
well, and the character stuff is is so on the nose and transparent and ham handed that it's one of the reasons you just can't accept it as real is that nobody behaves like this. It's not that she it's not that I don't know if Joan Crawford behaved like this. Nobody behaves like this. I wonder I, I'm very curious to know why, uh, aside from the fact that it is a bad film, why it uh, like it has this resurgence. It's particularly a very popular film among gay people. I know that. Oh, I think it's I think it's because Joan Crawford was an icon and Faye Dunaway is an icon. And it is the combination of the two. It's the idea that you're getting one icon taking a shot, not a negative shot, but taking a shot at bringing another one to life and doing it in a way that is so big. So I think I think everything that ever happened with this is about people going to watch Faye Dunaway, regardless of whatever else happens around her in that film. And, uh, you know, it's an entertaining movie to watch, but like you said, it would be a lot more enjoyable to enjoy the pulpiness of it without the idea that it's basically about child abuse. Whether it's a true uh, account of the specific child abuse or not, that's what the film is about, and it's just unsavory. It's tacky. Well, guys, next time, we've got a sequel to one of the most influential films of the late 70s. Yes, that's right. It's finally time for shock treatment. Oh, and Michael Myers is back, too. Burt Reynolds is going to knock somebody up. Meryl Streep is going to act her ass off. Michael Crichton and Albert Finney go high concept, and we are going to join a cult. October 1981 is going to rule. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. As always, I'm Drew McQueenie. I'm Scott Weinberg. Thank you all. (laughs) 